Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Ahmad was love. Ahmad was a victim. Ahmad did not deserve to leave this world the way that he did. And to all the joggers and to all the support that we're that we're getting. I wish that you all could, all of you guys, could have got to know Ahmad for who he was, because to know Ahmad was to love Ahmad. Hello, and welcome to a special edition of True Crime Daily, the podcast. I'm Anna Garcia. That was Wanda Cooper-Jones, the mother of Ahmad Arbery, the young African-American man who was killed while jogging in Georgia on February 23, 2020. The killing of Ahmad Arbery has evoked a lot of emotions about justice and race in this country. Unlike the recent case of George Floyd's death at the knee of a Minneapolis police officer, which unleashed public outrage immediately, the killing of Ahmad Arbery and the initial calls for justice in his case took place in darkness, without the watchful eye of the community or the media. Most of us learned about Ahmad's case when a graphic video of his death was released. Police told Ahmad's mother that her son had burglarized a home and that when neighbors tried to stop him and make a citizen's arrest, that is when Ahmad attacked them, the neighbors. A white father and son claimed that they shot Ahmad in self-defense. That is how he died, the police said. We now know that that's not exactly what happened. And the videotape is just part of a much bigger picture. This is a two-part special dedicated to telling this case from the beginning. Why did everything take so long? It wasn't just the COVID-19 pandemic, though of course it was a factor. Was it the fact that police were faced with investigating one of their own, a former cop and a recently retired district attorney investigator, Gregory McMichael, and his son, Travis? Did McMichael sway the investigation? New information just released during the preliminary hearing in this case reveals that Gregory McMichael made phone calls 
from the scene of the crime to his friends, both in the police department and at the district attorney's office where he used to work. How is it possible that the police never took the shotgun Travis McMichael used? They never took it into evidence to analyze it for things like fingerprints. Is it because the police and the district attorney had already made up their mind in this case? The preliminary hearing also revealed what role race may have played. According to testimony by a state investigator, Travis McMichael allegedly called Ahmaud Arbery the N-word after he shot him. This is not your quote. It's not the GBI's quote. This is a quote from the statement of Mr. Bryan as to what he heard Travis McMichael say prior to police arrival, correct? Very much so, yes. Um, understanding that and understanding that it might be a, a little uncomfortable to talk about the words because it involves a, a curse word and something else. I need to ask you about that quote. Can you please articulate for the court what Mr. Bryan said he heard Travis McMichael say prior to police arriving and after the fatal shooting? Yes, um, Mr. Bryan said that after the shooting took place, before police arrival, while Mr. Aubrey was on the ground, he heard Travis Michael make the statement. Our investigation also reveals a series of problems with alleged police corruption that began way before Ahmad Arbery ever went for a jog on that fateful day. We begin with Ahmad's mother, Wanda Cooper Jones. She was out of town for work when she got the call Sunday night from police. She was visiting with her own mother when the call came in. I want to talk about that day. Um... Were you home? Did you see Ahmad go off on his run? Unfortunately, um, that happened on that Sunday. I left that Tuesday to go to some training out of town. And the last time I saw Ahmad that Tuesday morning, I left early that morning, like about seven. He, Ahmad was still in bed. And I went to his room. I told him I was leaving. I'll be back in a couple of days. He said, okay. I said, I love you. And his last words to me was, I love you too. And I left. When did you get the call? Um, that's following Sunday afternoon, about 6 p.m. And who called you and what were you told? Um, I answered the phone. The, the, normally I don't answer the, the, known, the, the block numbers, but something told me to answer that block call. And I answered. He identified himself as being a, an investigator with Glen County Police Department. He told me his name was Sean Lowry. He went on to say um, he was. You no, know, he identified me as Wanda Cooper. He said, "Asked him, was I Ma's mom?" I told him, "Yes." He told me he was at my front door. I shared that I wasn't at home at the time. He said that he had some some, some information to tell me. He would not like to tell me this over the phone. He went on to say that Ma was involved in a burglary, and in the midst of the burglary, there was a confrontation with Ma and the homeowner. At, at that confrontation, there was a fight over the firearm. And unfortunately, Ahmad was shot and killed. How, how did you take that news? How did you, you must have just collapsed. No, I was sitting there with my mom, who's 84. And I really didn't want to just, I had to tell someone. And she was sitting there in her recliner and I just looked over at her. And I said, oh, we called him Quest. I said, mom, Quez has been killed. And she just, she cried out. At that time, I was numb. 
I can't describe how I was feeling because I don't know to this day what I was feeling. It was empty. And I reached out to my other siblings and we all came together. I am very, very sorry for your loss. I'm very sorry. 25-year-old Ahmad Arbery was shot and killed shortly after 1 p.m. on Sunday, February 23rd in Satilla Shores, which is about 15 minutes from downtown Brunswick. The neighborhood, lined with oak trees draped in Spanish moss, is in coastal Georgia, about halfway between Savannah and Jacksonville, Florida. It is here that Gregory McMichael and his son Travis grabbed their guns and chased a man they said was responsible for several break-ins. The only report of a break-in was made by Travis McMichael on February 1st. He reported that a gun had been stolen from inside his unlocked truck, which was parked in front of his house, but he never gave police a description of the suspect. There were, however, numerous complaints to police about trespassers at a house under construction near the McMichael's house. The events in and around a house under construction at 220 Satilla Drive are central to what happened the day Ahmad Arbery was shot and killed. Joining us is Elizabeth Grady. She's the attorney for Larry English, who is the homeowner. And Ms. Grady, welcome to the program, and you're joining us from Atlanta. Um, Ms. Grady, this construction site with, for the most part, no doors or, or walls was like a magnet for the curious. When did your client start having problems with people trespassing? Well, one thing I think it's helpful to understand is the history of the lot. So um, the reason it's a construction site is because my client, Larry English, and his family are building a home there. But before that, it was vacant and people treated it a little bit like a park. You know, it wasn't run down. It's not what you think of as a vacant lot that you don't want to spend time at. It was like a it was like a rec area, almost recreational area. And that is, in fact, why my client um, installed the cameras. He was aware that kids in the neighborhood would come and play there before the house started going up. And his concern was, well, the house will be going up. It'll be a construction site. That'll be a little dangerous. Plus, there's water behind it. There's the river, the Satilla River. And um, now the parents who maybe previously kept an eye on their kids won't be able to see them and somebody could get hurt. And he just, and he wasn't going to be there. He, he lives 90 miles away. So, you know, at first, um, it, you know, he would get daytime visitors. People want to come and look around. So he installed those cameras and he, he had the kids that he expected. And there is a video that I believe you might have seen where the two little kids come. They're on their bikes. So he called a neighbor down the street, that he, the one he knew best. He did not call the police. They're kids. He's not going to call 911 and um, have the police come and take care of some 9 or 10-year-old kids and, and also really anger um, the kids' parents who live in the neighborhood, I'm sure, who were his neighbors. There were eight security cameras in and around the property under construction. And each time someone went onto the property, the homeowner says that he either contacted a neighbor or police through a non-emergency number. Now, these incidents started happening so frequently that by December, a police officer who had been working with the homeowner suggested that he reach out to another neighbor, Gregory McMichael. But the GBI now reports that was Gregory McMichael's idea, and he asked the officer to send the homeowner that text message. It makes you wonder, could this have been a setup from the beginning? Officer Rash texted Larry at 940 on December 20th, and the text said, 
Your neighbor at 229 Satilla Avenue is Greg McMichael. Greg is retired law enforcement and also a retired investigator from the DA's office. He said, please call him day or night when you get action on your camera. His number is, and then he gave the number. And um, I'm, Larry doesn't recall ever seeing this text. So Ms. Grady, are you saying that when the text was sent from Officer Rash to your client on December 20th, that at that time, for whatever reason, it didn't really register. Right. And he did not act upon it. Did he ever call Gregory McMichael? He never acted upon it. And when I brought this text to his attention Friday before last, he was pretty sure that was the first time he had seen the text. He thinks he just did not open the text and never noticed it. Based on surveillance footage, a black male was seen at least four times before the deadly incident, and no one is sure if it was the same person each time. On the evening of February 11th, that is two weeks before the death of Ahmad Arbery, Travis McMichael spots an African-American man near the house under construction and calls 911. 911, what's the address of your emergency? Uh, Satilla Drive, 230, Satilla Drive. What's going on? We got a, uh, we've had a string of burglaries. Um, I was leaving the neighborhood and I just caught a guy running into a um, house being built, two houses down from me. Um, when I turned around, he took off running into the house. Okay. What did he look like? Uh, it's a black male, red shirt, white shorts. And you said the house is being built? It's being built, yes ma'am, it's vacant right now. He is in the house. Where are you at now? I am sitting right across the street in my truck watching the house. Watching the house with it right now. Right here at the door. Okay. Are you okay? Yeah, yeah. When I, it just startled me. Um, when I turned around, when I turned around and saw him and backed up, he reached into his pocket and ran into the house. So I don't know if he's armed or not, um, but he looked like he was acting like he was. So, uh, you know, be mindful of that. There's the neighbors. I guess one of the other neighbors saw it. Um, there's about four of us over here around it right now. Okay. So there was a Facebook group. Uh, and it's mentioned in the police report, uh, oh. this, the Satilla Shores homeowners. And on February 11th, this would have been the day when... Um, the previous confrontation uh, with Travis. Mm -hmm. Correct. Over someone, an African-American man seen in your client's mm -hmm. property. On February 11th, there, this was the post on Facebook. Lock your cars and your houses. Prowlers in neighborhood. Again, police are patrolling. Now, there is some truth to that. Mm -hmm. Right. But um, are the prowlers only the black people who come into the neighborhood? On February 23rd, Ahmad Arbery goes on his usual jog and he stops at the construction site. At 104, you can see him walking around and then he continues on his jog. At 108, a neighbor across the street spots Arbery and calls 911. Hey, you're on the back to the stores. There's okay. some great news out here. There's a guy in the house right now. It's a house under construction. Okay, do you, know, do you have your address or the other that house's address? 
uh, right at uh, 219 or 220 until it drives. And you said someone's breaking into yeah. it right now? No, it's, it's all open. It's under construction. And he's running right now. There he goes right now. Okay, what is he doing? He's running down the street. Okay. Back into the Okay, that's fine. I'll get them out there. I just need to know what he was doing wrong. Was he just on the premises and not supposed to be? And he's been caught on the camera a bunch before at night. It's kind of an ongoing thing out here. The man that's building the house has got heart issues. I think he's not going to finish it. So. Okay, that's fine. And you said it was a male in a black t-shirt? A white t-shirt. Black guy, white t-shirt. And he's, he's done back running. He's done running back into the neighborhood. Three minutes later, according to the police report, Gregory and Travis McMichael grab their guns, jump into their pickup truck, and begin chasing Ahmad Arbery. This is Gregory McMichael's call to 911. 911, what's the address of emergency? Uh, I'm out here at Satella Shores. There's a black male running down the street. Satella, where, where, where at Satella Shores? I don't know what street we're on. Stop, right there, it. Stop. Sir, hello, sir. Sir, where are you at? Gregory McMichael stopped responding to the dispatcher at this time. And if you were to match up the 911 call with the video taken by neighbor William Roddy Bryan, who was behind them, it would show this. The video shows Ahmad running down the center of the road. The McMichaels have used their truck to block his path. Travis McMichael is standing outside with his shotgun pointed. Behind Ahmad in another vehicle is William Bryan. Ahmad runs to the right of the Michaels truck. Then he appears to dart in front of it, and this is out of view. It's at this point that Travis and Ahmad move to the left of the truck, and a gunshot is heard. Travis and Ahmad continue to struggle over the shotgun off camera. This is when a second shot is heard. They come back into view, still struggling over the shotgun, and there's a third shot. Ahmad Arbery is dead. According to the police report, Gregory McMichael rolled over Ahmad's body looking for a weapon. He didn't find one. Ahmad Arbery was unarmed. At this point, police are on the scene, and they are faced with investigating one of their own. Gregory McMichael is a former Glynn County police officer, and he had recently retired from the Brunswick District Attorney's Office, where he worked as an investigator. Authorities called Ahmad's mother, and they told her that Ahmad had been involved in a burglary and that he had died. This information that you're told... I mean, you're trying to process the fact that your son is dead, and you're also trying to process the fact that you're being told that he was involved in a crime. What, what did you think? Did you think, what, what was going on? It was very, it was heartbreaking to know that Ahmad was gone. But then it was more devastating that Ahmad was involved in a burglary. And that caused him to leave me. Ahmad's paternal aunt, Thea Brooks, also spoke to us about what happened on February 23rd. I had said from the very beginning that he didn't do whatever they're accusing him of. I just, I knew better. But here's the problem with the burglary story. The homeowner says nothing was ever stolen or damaged. 
it's right there in the incident report. It says that the reason the McMichaels chased Ahmad Arbery is because they caught him burglarizing your client's house. And at that point, you could even say, well, the police got it from the McMichaels and they just didn't understand or they didn't know and they haven't checked it out yet. Whatever they told Mrs. Cooper Jones um, was what they meant to tell her. And it was not accurate and they could not have thought it was accurate. And uh, there, it is hard to find a good explanation for that other than if you don't want somebody to question your story, then you tell them something that would be very embarrassing to repeat because, you know, he's just told her her son's a burglar. I mean, as a mother, you're already on your back feet at that point, having to clear your son's name before you've even found out what happened. So your client is <clears throat> furious because he is furious because he understands that he has been used to tell this mother a lie about her son to smear him and to keep her from finding out what really happened. That is what we believe. I'm, I'm, you can have other um, theories about it, but that is what fits the facts the best. And the other aspect of it is this was done to not only justify what the McMichaels did, but appears to have been done to obscure or somehow cover up other people's involvement in the events leading up to it. Joining us now is Louis Bolaños, a private investigator here in the state of California, but he also used to be a homicide detective and an investigator in the Riverside County District Attorney's Office. Remember, the last job that Gregory McMichael held was as an investigator in the District Attorney's Office. Louis, welcome to the program. Thanks, Anna. I appreciate, appreciate uh, the opportunity. Lewis, I know that you, to a degree, have been working with the family. Can, can you explain to us your role and relationship here so we can be as transparent as possible? Absolutely. So this case, like many other cases, are cases that come to our attention because of the type of work we do. We typically, for the last 10 years since I've been working in the private investigator field and um, represent individuals that just don't have a voice or cases that aren't moving forward in the direction that they should be or should be prosecuted or wrongfully convicted, wrongfully accused, cold cases, cases basically that nobody else wants. So this was a case that came to our attention in the same manner. Uh, just by digging through uh, online based on someone's suggestion, finding it 10 pages deep on Google. And it was just a couple of paragraphs. And because of those two paragraphs, I started reading more and more and more about it. And mind you, this is way before the video went public, the now infamous viral video of Mr. Ahmad Aberi being killed. And in those two weeks, we did like we always do. I reach out to the family or contacts and contacts of the family and offered our services uh, if we can help in any way, shape, or form, whatever they need from investigative uh, uh, side of it and our law enforcement experience side of it. And as you mentioned, in this case, I was a past DA investigator. So I understand truly what that job entails and just as important, what it entails to get that job. And when I read and researched this and I finally heard the story firsthand, from one of the individuals who was working closely with Mr. Arbery's family, I, I was just 
Lord. So, Lewis, just to be clear, are you working uh, on behalf of the family? Are you assisting the family? Are, are, are you just volunteering? Just volunteering. This is strictly pro bono. Anything we find that's helpful in proving the truth, we'll turn over not only to the family, but to the prosecutors themselves. We're, we're working toward the truth. And that's what we approached this, and the family graciously uh, accepted our help. So that's how I got involved. Do you believe it was their intention to kill him or in their, in their head, did they actually think, you know what, we're truly going to detain him? I don't believe their initial intent was to kill him. I really don't. But I believe as it escalated and Ahmad kept ignoring them and running, like we said, literally for his life, that dad put Junior, who's untrained, and apparently so is dad, untrained in law enforcement techniques and shouldn't have been in that position anyways, but he put his son in a position, let's chase this guy, go get your gun. So now they're all fired up. Their blood's are boiling. They've got history with some African male going inside in and out of this house. They're pissed off. Gregory McMichael's long career at the district attorney's office, the very same office, which will be advising and prosecuting on this very case creates a conflict of interest for his former boss, DA Jackie Johnson. What happens next behind the scenes will forever impact this investigation. Jackie Johnson calls her friend and fellow DA, George Barnhill of the Way Cross Judicial District, and she gives him the case. Ahmad's mother, who is determined to find out what really happened to her son, reaches out to DA Barnhill's office. So you bury your son, and then, then what happens in the investigation? Um, we buried him on that, that, that Sunday, that Tuesday. Um, I woke up and I said, it's time to get some answers. So I reached out to Mr. Barney's office. I spoke to his secretary, identified, you know, who I was and why I was calling. Told her that I was told that, you know, the case had been transferred. And she said um, she didn't know of any case coming from Glen County. She wasn't aware. Um, if, if a case came over, she would know. She would have known about it. So I told her. So I read an article in the Brunswick News that states that Barnhill has it because it gives statements from him in quotations. So he has to have it. So she placed me on hold. She came back and she said, "Hold on, Mr. Barnhill will speak to you at this time." Till he gets on the phone, identified myself as a mom's mom. He never at one time told me sorry for your loss. I told him that, you know, um, I was his mom and I wanted answers. He told me that the case was now closed. The case could not be reopened until he get the results from the toxicology report and the autopsy. And at that time, he, he can get back with me with more details of the case. The case was new to him. He didn't know a lot about the case. So I said, so you can't tell me anything. He said, the only thing I can tell you at this point is your son was shot with a shotgun more than one time. And, that, and he said that very, very nonchalantly. I told him at that point, you know, I'm not going anywhere. I mean, if you said four to six weeks, I'll be calling you every week to get updates. And he said, okay. I've never heard of a DA clearing any case in 24 hours. There's a process of check and balances. 
that you have to do. And just doing your basic one-on-one investigation, hypothetical, a week, two weeks to get that done. You don't clear somebody in 24 hours. It just never happens, especially from at a DA level. But that's what happened in this case. The second DA on the case, George Barnhill, went to the police station. He drove himself the following day, the day after Ahmad was killed. And he personally told the police department that he believed that this was self-defense. They were trying to make a citizen's arrest and that they were, they were not to file any criminal charges against Travis or Gregory McMichael. So how is it possible? I think your question is very valid. How is it possible that in 24 hours time, the DA is able to figure out this whole case, knowing full well, there's still a lot more information and other videos and surveillance to be gathered. It's not possible. It's an agenda. He had an agenda. And typically when we see things like that, it's reflective of something, of something else, another internal problem. There's no way that should have happened. But at the same time, I'm on Facebook and I'm, I need to research who this new DA is because he's not, his office is not, they're not the most friendliest people that I've talked to. So I go on Facebook, I look at his friends, I notice he had a son with the same last name. I searched his page, it told me that his son was the assistant to the DA's office where the case was, where the case was reassigned from. So I immediately called his office again, spoke to the same young lady, told her that um, I found out that there's another conflict in this because his son is the assistant to Jackie Johnson where the crime in the county where the crime was committed. She said that she wasn't aware of that. I questioned her. I said, you didn't know that her son was, was the assistant there? And she said, no. I said, could you please refer this information to Mr. Barnhill? She said she would. And of course, D.A. Barnhill would know exactly where his son works. There isn't a parent out there that doesn't know exactly where their kid works, let alone in the same business, if you will. So then I call, I called the attorney general's office in Atlanta and I gave them my concerns as well. And they were very, they were helpful. They couldn't, they said they couldn't take the, the case back and have it reassigned because that's what they don't do that. They just assign the case and they couldn't just take it and give it to someone else. But one thing I can say, she did reach out to Barney's office to let her know, let them know that, that I had concerns. Civil rights attorney Chris Stewart represents Ahmad's mother. Barnhill never should have got the case. I mean, he got it before the attorney general even assigned it to him. Uh, he knew where his son works. What parent doesn't know where their child works? You know, he's a district attorney. His son is the ADA in Johnson's office. He knew his son worked there. He should have said, hey, I can't take the case either. I'm not offering an opinion. Let's call the attorney general immediately or you need to send it to another person. But instead, he took it. He gave advice on it. He gave his own personal opinions on the case, um, didn't follow the law, and tainted the entire situation. I find it incredible that DA Jackie Johnson, which would have been the DA under which this happened in her jurisdiction, made the call herself to D.A. Barnhill and said, can you take this case because I'm conflicted out, this guy used to work with me. Now, I get the part about her conflicting out, 
But what I don't get is her making the decision about where the case is transferred to when that is not in her legal purview. Yeah, that, and it also seems very suspect that the person she called is the father of one of her uh, prosecutors. So uh, wouldn't she have known better if she can't handle the case because of relationships that I can't send this to another district attorney who I know has relationships with him also? Um, unless she wanted him to finish off her dirty work. The pressure from the mother is working, though her repeated calls to the police and the district attorney may have gone unheard. Her complaint to the attorney general appears to have registered. At this point, the case is still not making any headlines, but that is about to change because D.A. George Barnhill has now recused himself. And in doing so, he has made his recusal letter Public. What's interesting about his recusal letter is he provides an awful lot of information, details about the case, which had not been released yet. And he also gave his opinion in writing, which is really interesting. And the other thing he did was he trashed the victim's family and his mother. He, he almost seemed annoyed. He writes that you know, um, since we were initially requested to handle the case, the victim's mother has clearly expressed she wants myself and my office off the case. She sees a conflict in that my son works at the Brunswick District Attorney's Office where Greg McMichael retired some time ago. She believes there are kinships between the parties. There are none. Duh, your son works in the District Attorney's Office, of course. There is a conflict of interest. Right, right. He's laying out the groundwork. And if he has any sway with anybody else who's going to read this, uh, he wants them to know how he feels. But that's not recusal. It's the exact opposite of recusal. He's tainting the waters. Barnhill's letter reaffirmed his initial opinion that the McMichaels had acted in self-defense under Georgia law. Here's more from family attorney Chris Stewart. D.A. Barnhill said in that uh, opinion that he released that Ahmad caused his own death because he assaulted Travis McMichael and that by pulling on the shotgun, he basically forced the gun or the trigger, if you will, the Travis's finger to fire at him. That's what his opinion is that he released. And that should show you the extent and the desperate, uh, levels that Barnhill was willing to go to to justify this. So he's saying Ahmad basically tried to commit suicide by shotgun, which is insanity. Um, he had no way to try and reasonably justify the shooting. So then he started becoming an expert witness on his own and making these outlandish uh, suggestions. Uh, it just shows how tainted his view was of the case and how much hate he had for Ahmad, who he didn't even know. The tenacity of Ahmad's mother. We wouldn't be here today without her. She's the person who started demanding that uh, District Attorney Barnhill be recused. Without her voice demanding that he get out of this case, he would still have it. He never would have recused himself. Um, and once he lost hold of the case, uh, the truth came out. There's nothing like the power of a mother's love and determination. The only reason I'm here also, and a lot of us.
you get Barnhill off the case. Mm-hmm. When Barnhill makes his recusal letter public mm-hmm. and adds details of the case, gives his opinion, and also takes a swipe at you. Mm-hmm. When you read that letter, what did you think? It's just confirmed what I had already had been thinking, but I didn't think that it was to that extent. The way that he went into details on what happened to actually make the death of my son okay. The recusal letter drops another bomb. It confirms that there is a video that shows the shooting in real time. That's the video that was taken by neighbor William Roddy Bryan. Ahmad's mother says that she always knew that there was a videotape early on, but she believed that that tape was of Ahmad committing that alleged burglary. I was given the impression that the video was actually going to show me a burglary because they were standing on this video. Like the video is why they did not make an arrest. And I really wanted to know what Ahmad was doing in the last minutes of his life to constitute him to be killed in the street like an animal. I want to see the video. And you thought it was a video of the burglary, not a video of him being killed. Exactly. I'm thinking that I was going to see a video of a crime. Well, you did. I did. You did. You did. On April 13th, a third prosecutor is assigned to the case, Tom Durden. So now there's a new DA. This would be the third DA on the case. And he says he sees the case differently and he wants to call for a grand jury. But because of the pandemic, he doesn't know if he can gather a grand jury. And so he ask the GBI to get involved. But before the GBI gets involved, this all happens very quickly, the video is released. When you heard of the video, could you bring yourself to look at it? No, I couldn't. And the, the, the strangest thing about it is that I wanted to see the video at first, but then when it was, I could actually take a look at it, I knew that I couldn't take it. I couldn't take it. So I chose not to. Have you seen the video? No, ma'am. To this day, you have not seen the video? No. It's a horrible video. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I've heard. I've heard. I don't know what mother could look at that. Yes, ma'am. Okay, excuse me. So you don't look at the video. You still haven't seen the video, but you know what it shows. Yes, ma'am. Do you believe, do you believe that the only reason there have been arrests is because that video became public? Yes, ma'am. It was very discouraging that Ahmad was, he was the victim. And then he was being victimized. That he was he was such a a horrible guy because he shouldn't have been in this man's house looking around. I mean, it was. And I'm looking at the authorities, the DAs, for them to help me to be my voice. And I'm having to go against the local authorities as well. 
I mean, it's, it's just been, it's just been, it's been crazy. I keep asking everyone the same question in this case, because one of the things that is very troubling is that the police had this video. Several district attorneys had this video. I believe that the attorney general had this video. And it's not like the video changed, but only when the video became public, did the authorities finally take action. And this is the part that I think is one of the biggest injustices. And there are several here. The facts of the video never changed. What I think, I think that they was looking at it in a, in a sense of trying to justify the murder as being okay. They wasn't looking at it to bring justice to the people who did it. They was looking at it to find reasons to make it right. We learned when the world found out when the video leaked, that's when we found out about the video. We didn't know either. So that's the first time you saw it? You saw it with everybody else? Yes, ma'am. For like an hour, I didn't watch it. And when you finally did see it? My heart just ached. Because all along I knew that what they had told us initially wasn't true. So after the video is released and the GBI gets involved, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation says that within 36 hours of them getting the case, they, they made their first arrest. They arrested Travis and Gregory McMichael. Do you think that the only reason that happened is because of public pressure? It happened because we saw the video. And immediately that day, I called a protest. It was like within 10 minutes of the video. I was like, we have to do something. We can't sit on this. And then I just put a post up on social media. And before I knew it, it was like 10 cars, 20 cars. And then we had the whole highway of cars. And you're trying to organize a safe protest in the middle of a pandemic. Right. How'd you pull that off? We just prayed and we went. What's your opinion that the video that went viral that really change the direction of of this investigation was released by the mcmichaels because they thought it would help prove that they didn't do anything wrong yeah thank god they're not the sharpest knives in the drawer let's just start with that but yeah i think they really believed that it would show because that day they showed that video to the responding officers and got the result they wanted so they continue. Once you did that, they're locked into that. They released it because they really thought it would defend them, that it showed Mr. Arbery attacking them. It showed him being aggressive, but that's not the whole picture. He was aggressive in defending himself. He made, like I said, two other attempts to made U-turns to run the other way. They chased him down. They stalked him. They hunted him. And they killed him. They murdered him. I'm absolutely convinced of that. 36 hours after the Georgia Bureau of Investigation gets the case, Travis and Gregory McMichael are arrested and charged with the murder of Ahmad Arbery. We reached out to the attorneys representing Gregory and Travis McMichael for this report, but they did not respond to our calls and emails. However, they have made some public statements. Laura Hogue, who is the attorney for Gregory McMichael, said, 
So often, the public accepts a narrative driven by an incomplete set of facts, one that vilifies a good person based on a rush to judgment, which has happened in this case. Travis's attorney, Robert Rubin and Jason Sheffield, have said they conducted an extensive initial investigation and believe there is compelling evidence that Mr. McMichael is not guilty of the charges against him. And they added, Travis has been vilified before his voice could even be heard. The truth in this case will exonerate Travis. The video of Ahmad Arbery's death was illuminating, and it also filled in the rest of the story for others connected to this case, like the homeowner and his attorney. When they see something like this and they can see it with their own eyes, not just because, in my client's case, not just because he can watch the video, but he can see how he gets drawn into the process and in some ways used, that has opened a lot of eyes down there. I would say 98% of everybody down there was horrified. Like There's plenty of race issues um, there and everywhere else. This, they were shocked to see this man. They know when they see a hunting. They know a hunting party when they see it, and they know when someone's being chased like an animal. That's something they're very familiar with, and they recognize it immediately. And they were almost to a man and woman shocked. I don't think this was ever about anybody's belief that there was a burglary. I think there had been at times um, a black presence in the neighborhood. You know, people coming into the neighborhood who were black and the McMichaels didn't like that. And, um, and it wasn't about anything in particular they were doing because nobody has ever identified anything. If you listen to the 911 call on the day of the first neighbor who calls in, you can hear the 911 operator say, but what is he doing? And the guy says, well, he's running. <laughs> That's not a crime. But um, I, I think that they, their antenna went up. They didn't like this. They wanted to put a stop to this. And um, maybe they believed there were crimes happening because they always think there are crimes happening if they see black people, but it was really just enough for them to see black people. So Lee Merritt, your associate in uh, representing uh, Ahmad's mother, says that the videotape is actually four minutes long uh, and it has not been released yet. And do you think that's going to be released before trial or the first time we'll see it will be at trial? You know, nowadays you just never know when a videotape is going to pop up. Um, but it clearly, that chase is a lot longer. Um, and Lee has done a great job ex trying to explain to people why it's longer. And what we're trying to show people is that that little 30 second or so clip, it doesn't even fit with what was in the police report. The police report from the McMichael's own words was, Ahmad doubled back and Roddy tried to box him in and then he went around. He explains a much further and longer chase. We don't see the turnaround and the attempt by Roddy to box him in. So it was much longer. Um, I just think that that would horrify people to see how long they chased a kid around a neighborhood in pickup trucks and cars. After the McMichaels are arrested and charged with murder, the attorney general swaps out prosecutors again. He assigns District Attorney Joyette Holmes as the fourth DA on this case. She is the first woman and African-American to hold the chief prosecutor job in Cobb County. 
Within two weeks, William Roddy Bryan is arrested and charged with felony murder and criminal attempt to commit false imprisonment. Bryan is the one who recorded the video of Ahmad's killing. We reached out to his attorney, but he declined to be part of this report. Louis, I want to talk about the delay in charging Roddy Bryan, William Roddy Bryan. He finally has been charged with murder and false imprisonment. So my question to you is, Roddy Bryan always said that he had nothing to do with it, or at least that's what he was saying publicly. But according to the first police report, he joined this pursuit and was active in blocking Ahmad and trying to trap him. So what do you think took so long in charging him in the very end? Oh, I love that question. So the fact that it took a while to arrest him, Mr. Bryan, I, I, I could see why that's possible because once he started talking, he wouldn't shut up. So rule number one, if you have a suspect who's going to keep talking, let him keep talking. He did all the interviews he was asked to do. And he kept talking and talking and he kept showing a different story than the McMichaels did. The McMichaels buried him in that first interview with law enforcement. They said he was helping trying to trap Mr. Arbery as we're driving down the road, chasing him. Mr. Bryan said he wasn't involved at all. And so what we know just from that statement, one of them's lying. The McMichaels are lying or Mr. Bryan is lying. So as an investigator, we like that conflict. We, the, we let them keep pointing the finger at each other. Let them keep talking. Um, his attorney kept talking. That was wonderful, right? As an investigator, let him keep talking. He, he just really thought that, that uh, they had a good defense and he was just the best witness possible because of the video. Well, I'm here to tell you that if they would have arrested him that day, we would have still had that video. Well, his attorney, Brian's attorney says that he is not now and never has been a vigilante and they still insist that he was a witness, not a participant. Is your investigation uncovered in any evidence that race played a role in the actions of Ryan Bryan on 223? I'll answer your question as thoroughly as I can, revealed as far as my opinion of motivation and reasons behind actions? Well, I think your opinion first. Yes, sir, it did. You believe it did? Yes, sir. Okay. Well, following up on your opinion, is there any evidence that race played a role in the actions of Roddy Bryan on 2020? There's evidence that of Roddy Bryan's racist attitude in his communications. Okay. And from that, I extrapolate the reason why he made assumptions he did that day of what was occurring. He saw a man running down the road with a truck following him, and I believe he made certain assumptions that were at least in part based upon his racial bias. The family says the three arrests are a step toward justice, but what still haunts them are the last minutes of Ahmad's life. His aunt, Thea Brooks. I honestly think those were the longest. 12 minutes of his life. Um, he was afraid. Um, there was no way out. Um, I think at some point while he was jogging to get away that in his mind he knew that this was going to be his last time. He didn't have a phone call anybody and so 
I think in his mind, after this chase prolonged and went on, that he knew that my only way out is to fight. Because scientific studies show that when you're in the corner and you're boxed in, fight or flight is pretty much one of the two is going to kick in. So I've already tried the flight because I ran from you for over four minutes to get away. And now I'm blocked in from both directions. So now I have to fight. And so I think that when he ran up on that truck and realized that there was no way out, that I just knew that I felt in my heart, he probably just started talking to God and just saying, you know, Lord, I don't think I'm going to make it out of this, but whatever happens, you know, just don't let me go out without a fight. And he, he fought to the end. I'm so sorry for your loss. Yes, ma'am. When you think of the last 12 minutes of your son's life, can you, is there any way you could possibly imagine how horrible that was? To be honest with you, I try not to, to even sit and think about it because he had no idea that he was in trouble. His best friend said he looked at the video. He said Ahmad was, was very confused. He looked very confused. He didn't know what was going on. And that's the way that I, I always thought it happened. He didn't know that he should have ran and hid behind a building or got in the, the woods. He didn't know he was in trouble. Coming up in part two of our investigation, we take a closer look at the police department in charge of this case. The GBI had already been investigating the Glynn County Police Department before this happened. Imagine the distraction when the police chief was indicted on corruption charges just days after Ahmaud Arbery's death. We will also examine how Gregory McMichael and Ahmaud Arbery may have known each other. We'll also look at how Arbery was identified so quickly by police, yet he had no ID on him. For True Crime Daily, the podcast, I'm Anna Garcia. Thanks for joining us.